0: This is A Confused Heap of Facts, the podcast where we have a discussion about history with the faculty of the Department of Military History and the U.S. Army Command and General Staff College. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the Department of the Army, Department of Defense, or U.S. Government. Hello, this is Dr. Jonathan Abel, and we are here with the director of the Department of Military History, Dr. Dave Cotter. Dr. Cotter, welcome. And welcome. I'm glad to be here. All right, we're also here with Dr. Ellen Gilariato. Hello. And we're here today to talk about a topic that is important to uh, genocide and Holocaust studies, but does not get that much attention, particularly kind of in popular media. Uh, which is what happens after the uh, Second World War ends, particularly in in Germany, um, with regard to the kind of legal side of prosecuting um, criminality of the Holocaust. Uh, so, so Dr. Cotter, uh, start us off with kind of a broad sketch of what's happening. You know, the 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 Soviets have taken Berlin, the Germans have surrendered, we we have discovered the camps. What happens now?
1: Well, now there's a there's a a quest amongst the allied leadership and they all agree on this uh, for, for accountability uh, for the war crimes of the of the National Socialist regime um, and there's going to be um, some general agreement before the war even ends uh, the London Charter lays out uh, what the the broad scope of, of accountability is going to be um, it is further refined when the UN meets out in California uh, at the end of the war and the, <coughs> the, the, the Allied Control Council, if you will, the occupying force, establishes a, a, a legal uh, rubric, if you will. Uh, but the most uh, evident uh, event, of course, is the International Military Tribunal, which happens at Nuremberg. Uh, and the intent here is to, is to hold accountable the leaders of the Nazi party.
0: And these are the famous photographs of like Hermann Goering in the, in the box.
1: Exactly. Uh, and the main, what the, the Allied uh, uh, occupying forces identified as the main perpetrators uh, of, of the war and of the crimes attended to that war. Um, following the International Military Tribunal, and there had been an intent, intent to a to, uh, concept, if you will, to have several of these, but really that was the only one that was an international tribunal. Then it devolved into national mil- tri- military tribunals or national trials, and each of the four occupying powers in their zone was responsible for those prosecutions. Uh, And under Allied Control Council Law Number 10, the same uh, basic charges, if you will, the four four charges, well, three plus one charge, uh, of the IMT, the International Military Tribunal, were in force uh, in these national trials.
0: So the four occupying countries are? Uh, They were
1: uh, the Soviet Union, France, Great Britain, and the United States. Okay. And uh, and so each of these in their own little areas had, had trials. Uh, the Soviets were, of course, famous for show, show trials, uh, where where the uh, the accused would be brought into the to the courtroom um, and and basically compelled before arrival to admit to guilt, uh, and and then it was over. Uh, the French were concerned with with trying uh, those people that had perpetrated crimes in France, for the most part. Uh, the the British had a north the northern region of Germany and, and had a much broader scope the u.s had the, the largest scope and it is in the u.s trials where the doctor's trial and the judge's trial and, and others happened the, the the other less famous than the the international military tribunal but still famous and of course that famous movie is based on the judge's trial judgment in nuremberg
2: are there p- like a jury of your peers when they do these trials because I feel like it would be not as fair if you have French victims of the Holocaust judging perpetrators of the Holocaust.
1: And it, these are tribunals uh, that, that operate without juries. The okay. judges render the judgments. But one of the things in the, in the International Military Tribunal and the subsequent national tribunals uh, that it, 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 every nation tried uh, with different results to do is to avoid the perception of visiting visit victor's justice. Uh, in these courtrooms, and as a matter of fact, in the International Military Tribunal, almost all the contentious decisions were, were held in favor of the defendants, not the prosecution. And the prosecution was um, uh, vociferous in their objections to that, uh, but what it did was it maintained the credibility mm-hmm. of it, uh, even though there will be cries of, of Victor's justice uh, throughout the 50s and into the
0: 60s. So what's the overarching principle here? We understand uh, war guilt. That's a well-established issue, particularly in European affairs, uh, but, but now we have this added issue of the Holocaust. So what, what's, the, what's the drive behind these international and national trials?
1: More than anything else, it's accountability, and so they they talk about you know your basic war crimes, but they also talk about crimes against humanity, crimes against peace, and a significant piece of this is the conspiracy element, um, and we we'll, you know that 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 uh, that has traction throughout this process as it develops and morphs over time, uh, the the concept of conspiracy. So uh, the the um, the the. The, the idea of accountability uh, begins early on and the intent there is to, is to maintain that throughout the course and to maintain it as a standard. The problem is that once the IMT uh, adjourns and does not reconvene as it was supposed to have, they, uh, the, the nations begin to diverge and they run out of uh, enthusiasm and, and uh, energy to continue these prosecutions. And so they slowly began to dwindle down. Uh, There's also a a significant uh, push to get the uh, the the German government uh, uh, back into a more sovereign mode, um, and so so that they could run their own courts and and contest the Cold War. Exactly. That and and that's you know there's there's uh, there's some ugliness in this in the way that so many people were um, excused from accountability um, either entirely or partially as a, as a function of our, our, the allied effort uh, to get uh, what would end up being West Germany to be our, our ally, our buffer against the, the growing Soviet state.
0: So in, in you mentioned these kind of three categories of crimes basically uh, war guilt, uh, crimes, war crimes, and then crimes against humanity. And crimes against peace. And crimes against yeah. peace. So was there, was there an effort to disaggregate the war side from the Holocaust side?
1: Yeah, the Holocaust is a concept that doesn't really come to the fore until a little later on. Uh, they, they're just looked at as crimes. Um, and, and one of the things that we see, is especially as Germany wrestles with this, um, and then later on, you'll see it in the in the uh, the special tribunals for Yugoslavia and Rwanda, is is the fact that our law, especially in the Western tradition, is wholly incapable of dealing with these types of mass crimes. Um, murder is an individual crime. Um, uh, you know, and then Stone famously said that you know one one person killed is a tragedy, a million is a statistic. Right. And and that ethos sort of rides through this this whole process as we try to get to accountability. How do you judge accountability for millions of dead? It, and, and and you know you can only give so many life sentences or 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 death sentences as it were. So. It's it, it's a real problem. It, it, it's a legal conundrum that the that the Germans do deal with uh, over time.
2: Yeah, so that's uh, leads me to you're talking about when they initially started these tribunals. They're going after the leaders, who they think were responsible for this, um, who may have dictated this. How do how do they start dissecting who is going to be tried and who's not going to be tried and for what crimes?
1: And th- that's that's just a great question. Um, when they when when the war first ended, uh, they wanted nothing more than to have um, Hitler and Himmler and Goering and 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 um, Heydrich uh, it, as the big four, and then Goebbels was rolled into that group, and and sometimes called the big five. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and what there was a move to just blame the entire war and all the crimes associated with it on those people mm-hmm. um, and of course Gehring was left kind of holding the bag, he, he's the only it's one It's a bag of looted art. Well
2: it doesn't help when the main guy killed himself in a bunker.
0: Well and Heydrich's already dead by the way And Heydrich's
1: already yeah. dead yeah. and, and Goebbels is already dead and Himmler is already dead. Himmler, right. when the British caught him, he he had a cyanide capsule and um, underwent some questioning and then decided that was enough and, yeah. and used the sign. Okay. so the only one left of course is is, uh, is Goebbels, uh, excuse me, is Garing. and uh, and so Gehring is one of the principal uh, uh, people that stand trial probably the principal mm-hmm. and
0: I believe he he commits suicide too before the uh, end on
1: the night of the of the scheduled execution right okay. right yeah so even,
0: even in that case, the leadership kind of robs the allies of justice. Yep. Exactly.
1: And then later on, different nations expend different amounts of energy on trying to achieve this accountability. And so when you look, from, for example, when the, when the um, U.S court tried to uh, try the judges, or when they tried to try the doctors, mm-hmm. it was very unpopular in, in many quarters. Um, there was a significant pushback later on in Germany against the deaths of, uh, of uh, Colonel General Jodl and uh, Field Marshal Keitel. Keitel, of course, had been the, the, uh, the chief of the OKW, the Oberkommando de Wehrmacht, the, sort of like the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff.
0: Yeah, most Americans may not know this, but Keitel is essentially running the war as a, as a subordinate, if perhaps not lackey, of Hitler. Yeah, I like Lackey but yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, um, so There's a reason we don't know. It's a name, doctrinal right? term, really. Yeah. Yeah. And Yodel was his.
1: Chief? Yodel was the operations chief, right. and actually the man that Hitler relied on more than Keitel. Right. Uh, but both of those uh, were found guilty, sentenced to death, and hanged. And Keitel had signed the surrender yeah. papers, correct? I believe so. Yeah. Yes. Um, I know Dernitz did. Right. Uh, so. Right. Um, but had, were
2: they tried for war crimes or crimes against humanity? Uh,
1: yes. Um, in, in those two, in both cases. Uh, well, there was an association between things like the Commissar Order that they could link Keitel and Yodel to uh, in addition to the, the you know, the uh, other crimes. And,
0: so, and for our listeners, the Commissar Order is this kind of infamous order from Hitler to shoot Soviet commissars, political officers, but basically as as spies, uh, it, the well, Summary executions? It,
1: well, they were, they, were, they were summarily executed as soon as they were identified as commissars. They were the political officers, which were an organic part of every Soviet formation, uh, and they were uniformed. And uh, under the commissar order issued by the Fuhrer, they, uh, these uh, people, these officers, did not enjoy the protections of, of uh, the, the traditional protections that, that captured military people did anyway. And this is sort of an academic point, because when you consider the fate of Soviet and German POWs on the Eastern Front, none none of them enjoyed the the traditional... The best
0: treatment? Right, and also this is a a military, the German military, heavily involved in the Holocaust.
1: Very much so. Interesting point on that is the fact that... um, they had this reputation of being uh, the the so-called clean hands of the Wehrmacht and that was extant and and powerful until the 1990s Um, uh, General Eisenhower and then President Eisenhower uh, advocated a number of times publicly that the, the Wehrmacht had not been involved in these types of activities. And I, I'm not sure wh- what, what, what the motive for that was, but he did say that and he, and he believed it. Uh, I think he believed it. Um, but it, at the end of the day, in the 90s, there was a, a very large um, display or uh, presentation that, that, that crossed all of Germany uh, with all sorts of documentary, photographic, and film evidence of Wehrmacht involvement in, in in the Holocaust.
0: Yeah, and it wasn't just the SS. It wasn't just the various uh, groups, you know, anti-Semitic groups. It was it was pretty much the entire Nazi government geared at it was doing this. It was
1: absolutely this. This was um, it's interesting because there's a there's a, a great historic historiographical debate about whether or not the Holocaust was unique. Um, and and that 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 can go on for days I'll, I'll just leave it there but the one thing that was truly unique about it and, and is really undeniable is the fact that the only group that the National Socialist regime targeted for extinction uh, were the European Jews mm-hmm. um, others were targeted for removal replacement disposal uh, they were expendable uh, I mean you know many of these people uh, Polish, uh, non-Jewish Polish uh, uh, people in the labor camps were looked at as a a consumable commodity. Mm -hmm. Uh, But that's not the same thing as diverting um, uh, all sorts of resources to make sure we get as many Jews as possible to the death centers uh, and frequently at the cost of of, uh, enabling resupply of the army because we were consuming freight cars to do that.
0: And it's the literal definition of genocide, right? The extermination of a genus.
1: Well, yeah, a people, an identifiable people. And so that's, you know, when we talk about that, uh, this is the the one group uh, amongst the, 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 the National Socialists that they absolutely wanted to exterminate hundred percent, and made it made it clear.
0: Yeah, and that's an important point for our listeners to understand. This clean Wehrmacht or clean hands Wehrmacht myth still exists, and it's important to, to understand that that's it's it's a myth. It did not exist.
1: It didn't. And you, but, but um, b- because I'm not as young as I used to be, um, when I first came into the army, it was very interesting because we held the Wehrmacht up as the model. Mm-hmm. Right, the um, Guderians and the Monsteins. But it was also yeah, it honor. Right. And 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 uh, discipline yeah. and compliance with all the laws and and uh, we I mean the the U S Army held the, uh, the the German Army up as the model of excellence.
2: It's a very romanticized version. Oh, it very is very sanitized version. Which was
0: sold to us by the German generals who survived.
1: And complicit with the German generals that survived was were the American. Uh, occupying power mm-hmm. the, um, the occupying force I've I already mentioned uh, Eisenhower's comments um, but uh, numerous uh, American officials in there I mean I' think of uh, you know Undersecretary McCloy as a good example that absolutely sold this uh, uh, a, 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 well how did you get Bernard von Braun here?
0: Yeah and that's I, I, I meant to ask you too about Operation Paperclip um, because there, there's another thing that happens right So we have the Keitel's and Yodels who were executed. We have the Average Spears, who, who was kind of the, the literal architect of the Reich, who was acquitted. And then you have the Werner von Braun's, who happily transitioned to a new career in the US.
1: Yes, and do very well. I, I do want to point out though, that Speer wasn't acquitted. He was sentenced to 20 years and, and, and served the 20 years. Okay. Uh, he, was, he was sentenced also at the IMT, the International Military Tribunal. Uh, and um, this was an interesting Cold War thing. Uh, uh, they all were in Spandau Prison. Those mm-hmm. uh, they were imprisoned at Spandau, and uh, and the guards changed. Each nation would would do a changing of the guard, um, and and as the war w- it, it, as the Cold War went on, uh, the U.S., the British, and the French uh, lobbied very hard with the Soviets to get these people released. You know, Hess is another one, mm-hmm. um, and the Soviets absolutely refused. <laughs> uh, they had to serve
0: their full term, and. Uh,
2: I'm not surprised.
0: For
1: yeah. some of them, that was terminal.
0: Yeah, yeah, and bad memory on my part, yeah. Speer was not executed, but he was convicted. No, he well. was de- definitely not. Can we, uh, so uh, b- before we move off this point, we again, this third category of people who have moved mm-hmm. to the U.S., they're right. on bronze. So, so how does that play into the search for justice, that we just pull some people out of Germany and say, congratulations, good American?
1: Yeah, and it's, um, it's not our best hour. For sure, um, and, and and Operation Paperclip, a uh, couple of really good books about it that 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 explore it in detail, about how we we shaped the narrative to be able to justify this, all of course um, uh, energized by the Cold War and and and, uh, and and our fear of the Soviets. And I remember when I was growing up, there was there was a joke that was frequently told about um, you know who's better, the, the Soviet German scientists or the American German scientists, uh, <laughs> rocket scientists. And, uh, but but uh, von Braun is not alone. There were, there were many others. Um, and, uh, and they contrast, of course, markedly with the, uh, those that escaped the regime and helped build the atomic bomb. Um, but the, uh, the, the Operation Paperclip folks, it, it happened at many different levels. Um, uh, for instance, uh, <coughs> uh, demyanyuk uh, w- was considered to be a, a, an intelligence source, uh, but he was such a low level uh, mm-hmm. that when he was uh, when he was first deported and, and sent to uh, to Tel Aviv, there was no real resistance.
0: Didn't the U.S. also use Klaus Barbie as kind of an Very anti-communist much so. in he, South He America? was a, he
1: was a provider uh, of intelligence uh, to the U.S. and the, the, the U.S. authorities did try to protect him. Uh, but as as the as the clamor in France grew louder and louder, uh, you know the folks
0: in Lyon w- w- wanted accountability. Yeah, and, and Barbie is known as the butcher of Lyon uh, during the occupation in France.
2: <laughs> no, I wanted to go back to the idea of narrative that we're talking about and who appears as villains and who aren't villains. So the Wehrmacht, the idea that they were not active players in the Holocaust, but we know that's true. Um, if that's like because like frontline soldiers are something to be honored and they're courageous and they're brave and they don't get their hands dirty in that type of way. Um, but who are who are the regular villains that have stayed villains or are there people that ha- were villains once and then they became non-villains um, or is it just messy? Can you walk us through kind of the narrative and who plays the villains, the it, victims, and the saviors?
1: It is, it is interesting. I um, haven't thought about it in those terms. It, the, the SS is... Always the villain. it's always been a villain. Um, and the SS, of course, operates at many different levels. Uh, they're a security service, um, they are a, an arm of the uh, of the war fighting mechanism, the the Waffen-SS are actually combat formations, but the Totenkopf uh, phil, uh, uh, branch of the, the SS, they're the ones that were the prison camp guards and operated uh, the gas chambers, the crematoria, etc. Um, Those folks have always been uh, considered uh, bad, and and, and SS people that were uh, tried and convicted and and sentenced to long terms, they were some of the last people that were released uh, in the 50s. There was a, a general amnesty in the 1950s during the Adenauer administration. Uh, as Adenauer leveraged his um, his ability to, to get what he wanted for his people uh, in the 50s as a function of the Cold War.
2: But that was because they played active roles, and there was a lot of evidence that they commanded the tr- uh, the camps.
0: And you can't excuse them, I think is what you're saying. No,
1: no. no.
2: There's no way to get around it.
1: No, I mean, you asked who the bad guys are. The SS, <laughs> Those are the bad guys. The SS are the bad guys. So many of the uh, Gauleiter, which are not military people at all, but the local governors, and and Frank, of course, from Poland, is the Mm -hmm. poster child for that. Um, And uh, other interesting about uh, the you know the the submarine warfare in um, in uh, the the way the Nazis prosecuted submarine warfare and the way the uh, the Americans did very similar, and uh, you know. Everyone's heard the story about how Dernitz and Rader reached out to uh, to Nimitz and said, oh, "How did you How did you folks prosecute submarine
0: warfare?" and and they ended up having to drop that charge. Again. <laughs> um, well, what's the what's the quote from Curtis Lemay, the Air Force General, that um, it's if it's a war crime if you're defeated. Yeah, talking yep. about the strategic bombing bombing. Camping? Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so we've got these folks. We've got the folks who are you know maybe military. Uniform military and their job is to kill people so how do you then pull a narrative out of that 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 might make them guilty of crimes against humanity I think we understand the crimes against peace part but yeah. crimes against humanity like where how do you how do you distinguish well again
1: this is the um, the, the Allied governments trying to come to grips with this idea of mass murder. Mm-hmm. There's there's no law in the books for mass murder right. anywhere, um, mass yeah. atrocities. There there just isn't.
2: Yeah, serial killer doesn't seem to fit the book. Yet. <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah. Um, so yes, but I, that, but we we so they that is how that begins to evolve over time. But what you've seen first now is from about 1945 till about 1949, and, and there's there's gray areas in here. It's not a clean break. The Allies are pretty much actively prosecuting. It begins to dwindle in '48 because the the Allied governments begin to run out of enthusiasm. They they're built. They want to rebuild their countries. Mm -hmm. They they want to keep going on. As the Germans take over uh, in in the in late '40s and beginning into the into the '50s, we start to see a steady decline of prosecutions. Uh, And this is because. Um, they want to be done with it. Mm -hmm. Uh, They talk about a zero hour in Germany where we're starting all over again uh, with a clean slate. Uh, And there's significant debates about this within and without Germany. Uh, It it, it goes on, uh, well, technically it goes on today. It has not stopped. That debate is is continuing. But uh, we do see uh, significant um, numbers of people that are uh, released from prison, uh, sentences curtailed, um, and then, of course, the drop in prosecutions. So the, the level of accountability uh, gets extremely low and by, by the mid-1950s. For instance, uh, Manstein is released from prison based on the public uh, resentment at Yodel and Keitel being hanged. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there are many other examples of this. Um, I don't want to short-sell it. It doesn't mean there were no prosecutions. There were about 5,000 of them. Uh, during during the 50s and and and, uh, and and so there was a lot of those successful prosecutions and but when you consider the millions that were involved both in the perpetrator side of the house and the victim side of the house 5,000 is a relatively insignificant number <clears throat> and this this idea of, of, uh, of avoiding accountability uh, generally, uh, and I've already talked about some exceptions, but generally uh, continues through the 50s and really doesn't reverse itself until sort of an international awakening uh, that, that, that slowly takes place but really is punctuated by the Eichmann trial in Jerusalem.
0: So you you bring up an interesting um, point and and one that I think is is fair for kind of historical and public notice of, of these events it's easy to identify and prosecute an Albert Speer, a Hermann Göring, a William Keitel. Once the, the, the Allied powers, including the Soviets, once they've run through those folks, the guys who are on an org chart somewhere, we are now faced with a very different issue in prosecuting, if you will, ordinary Germans, whether that's a, a, you know, a, an elite government servant like a judge or somebody who works in a factory. Uh, I've heard estimates that there are up to 40 million people who may be liable for prosecution in Germany, but we're talking about a huge number of people. So setting aside the elites, who are important but uh, perhaps get too much attention when we talk about these issues, how do you go about denazifying a country? How do you go about dealing with the prosecutions of people who may have been incidentally involved, who may have been involved in one incident, who can truly claim that they did not know the scope of what was happening? But we're still involved.
1: You know, the denazification uh, thing is very interesting um, because denazification was um, directed by the Allies, um, and it was uh, energetically enforced um, throughout the period of, of the Allied Control Councils, uh, Aegis, um, and it was uh, it was something that basically stopped. Uh, as this transition happened and I, I, I've written before about uh, the period of the early 50s being the re-Nazification period and, and I don't mean that in a cavalier manner. What I mean by that is um, the Allies used to do when, when they would the investigators would do a pretty significant investigation to determine what level of responsibility you had. They had three levels. Um, and, uh, and and everybody opted, for, of course, for level three or, not, or, or complete exoneration. And it was difficult to do that. If they had your name and a couple of records, it was they were gonna they, you were gonna get assigned some level of blame. Well, that begins to, to fade quickly uh, as as the Adenauer administration takes over, and they it became very easy. Uh, to get a clean record, and they would inter- they would issue a thing that was uh, jocularly called the Persil Shine, and Persil is a, a name brand of a laundry and dish soap in mm. Germany, and it was the, the, the clean sheet. So you're getting the clean card, um, and it was really easy to get that, uh, and so the the Persil Shine enabled the renazification of of. Germany and this this is going to have long-term effects on the accountability because the most of the legal system in Germany uh, was compelled to be part of the National Socialist regime. Mm-hmm. Uh, some did so reluctantly and resisted throughout. Others um, enthusiastically became part of the regime, and uh, there are a number of uh, courts that that. Uh, that uh, shaped the law to, to, to enable national socialist outcomes uh, that, that we would consider grossly illegal today but but that's how it was. But, uh, and then the other part of this too is um, once these judges are in place and the intent here is to avoid accountability or become an obstacle to accountability. Um, the idea of personal accountability mm-hmm. is key here because in a murder charge, you have to be personally accountable, and if you if if you cannot be proved to have been the trigger puller for mm-hmm. for, for lack of a better uh, phrase, um, then you you cannot be tried for murder. Not alone, let alone the codicil about having evil intent, uh, right. which is which is another aspect of German law.
2: Mm-hmm. I was thinking. You're talking about people wanting to have that zero hour, that reset. Is it just because Germans um, were just financially, economically, emotionally, physically exhausted, and it was, they were just, we, we hanged a few people, a few people were in prison, and we are ready, 5,000 people, but we are just ready to be done with it and move on?
1: Very much so. Um, that, that very well captures the ethos of the period. We we did it, we've admitted that we did it, we've paid the price, and we just want to turn the page and rebuild Germany. It is, of course, in our interest, our national interest, uh, you know, geopolitical interest that Germany rebuild, and, mm-hmm. and we, we we helped quite a bit in that regard. All the allied nations did. Well, the Soviets not so much, but... Um,
0: they rebuilt their part of Germany just well, a little they differently. Did. Well,
1: they We'll have did. to
2: talk about the Cold War contacts for sure. They did, <laughs> but um,
1: but there's a, uh, a, a real problem with with uh, th- that because this idea of accountability may be something the Germans think they have satisfied, mm-hmm. but the awakening victim population does not. Mm-hmm. The, the, victims, the victims of the Holocaust, well, the, the victims of the Shoah in particular, the, the Jewish victims, uh were not very vociferous about this at first and part of that's because they were physically mentally exhausted mm-hmm. and then they would you know spend a lot of a lot of their time and energy looking for their families mm-hmm. uh, Generally unsuccessfully, but th- that's what they were doing, and so they weren't. Th- th- there was not a loud clamor. There were exceptions to this, of course, but um, the, the 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 result of this was that, that there's a latency the period before we start to see um, pushback, if you will, and, 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 and you know the, the clamor for or the low. Murmurs of accountability uh, demands for accountability begin to get louder and louder over time mm-hmm. So at about the same time the Germans think well, maybe maybe we'll just push this down and then we'll move on the the, the 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 calls for accountability are
0: beginning to 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 ramp up So we have another practical problem here, which is if you truly denazify a country like Germany you essentially have no civil servants or public workers left um, because of course like all kind of party driven states to, to get a job you basically needed to be part of the party and so how do you as a legal system disaggregate you know perhaps begrudging party membership or even honest party membership from participation in the Holocaust so you know thinking of a figure like Oscar Schindler a, you know Nazi party member but, comma, savior of a few Jews. Righteous among the nations. Right, exactly. So how, how do you do that as a legal system when you have so many people who were, you know, I'm doing air quotes, party members? Well, the,
1: the, the allied governments really did try to do that. They tried to vet so that the, the most powerful, or maybe perhaps the most egregious of the National Socialist operatives uh, were, were to be uh, distanced um but the total ban on on uh, on Nazis, people that had been Nazi party members that came into effect a little bit after the end of the war that was that created a problem. and of course, we've never seen this before except in 2003 and in, in Baghdad ratification yes, yeah. and, and the same thing happened um, and so you know the, the the prime example of that is when then Major General Petraeus um, put the professors back to work at the University of Tikrit and putting the professors back to work at the University of Tikrit they had all, they had all been compelled to be members of the Baath Party to have their jobs as you point out uh, but to get them back into into the into the university meant that the young men were going to class and not out Doing other things, so well,
0: and and it's also <coughs> worth pointing out this is not an an inapt analogy because the term Nazi was used to describe the Baath Party and Saddam Hussein. Yeah, absolutely. So so how do you do this then, as a as a law system, uh, especially once we transition to German jurisprudence?
1: Well, and th- and I think that's what the Germans tried to do. They tried to just uh, you know I, I made light of the Persil shine, but what they tried to do was uh, just take wash the Nazis out of the system, and 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 it wasn't really a re-Nazification process. What it was was a process of enabling uh, the bureaucrats and the and the the other professionals that had been compelled to join the party in order to keep their position. But but how do you make the trains run on time? Mm-hmm. So you know it, it it is a dilemma.
2: What I was thinking is like it sounds all well and good, and it's quite an ambitious plan it has to be expensive not in, not only in money to go through all these vetting and trials but also in time and resources that perhaps Germans don't have the allies don't have given what else is going on in the world at the time
1: Well and it was you know we talked about the the Allies running out of enthusiasm but they were also running out of money and time and, and they had other they had other priorities uh, that were cropping up because of the Cold War uh, the Germans too, really want to rebuild a ruined nation uh, but accountability is one of the things that is really not negotiable it it, it, it must happen mm-hmm. or, or or because if it's not then it's an unresolved issue and it, it'll, it'll always be there
2: do you see any instances where perhaps you have two individuals one is a trained professional maybe someone who actually can make the trains run on time and someone who is also just as guilty but maybe not as Valuable to the state.
0: They say an unskilled worker. An
2: unskilled worker. Do you see them being treated differently in the trials?
1: But well, we do, and, and, and I'm not talking about German bureaucrats here. Now I'm talking about the military people that that operated in the camps. Okay. Um, that we do see that um, uh, after the second phase that we talked about, the 1950s, where there was this uh, significant amount of clemency and, and, and um, uh, you know. Sort of avoidance of prosecutions in the 60s, it starts to pick up again. Uh, in the Frankfurt Auschwitz trial trial of 1963, we start to see some 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 more prosecutions. You know, but by this time, Anne Frank is now widely known. The you know the the, the, the both the film and the the, the show um, and the, the book, of course. Um, uh, there are other films out there that are really starting to cut into the to the, na- the international consciousness, but particularly in the United States. The Pawnbroker is a great example. Mm-hmm. Um, we start to see these things uh, start to grow, and um, it's also interesting because um, German children and especially German teenagers are starting to ask, "What did you do during the war, mm-hmm. Daddy?" And so there's there's this push for I don't want to say accountability, but there's a push for more information, okay. and this is one of the engines that runs the, the the idea that the Wehrmacht didn't have such clean hands. It starts that in the, that inquisition, if you will, into into that kind of uh, behavior, um, and then um, so as the 60s and in, in moves into the 70s, and then in the United States, the the real icebreaker, of course, was an NBC miniseries called Holocaust, which the critics just just torpedoed. It, it was just a terrible depiction historically. It had a hugely powerful effect on the United States of America. Okay. Um, it woke up America to the idea that there had been this horrific thing. They had seen clips and film, you know, on TV occasionally, but this was very dramatic and it, it put it made real people out of out of the characters, and so
0: and not out of context too. This is the Vietnam era, exactly. And it,
1: it, and, and many uh, many people believe that the the, the two things are related, and, right? And uh, and so that starts to happen and so the, there's there is beginning to be in that, that third period if you will a greater push for accountability but it's also related to the idea of awareness mm-hmm. uh, it's related to the idea of, of, of more than just statistics you know um, one of the things that General Eisenhower did uh, when he when he uh, visited the camps was he required uh, motion picture and still photography mm-hmm. records to be taken uh, and he said, because at some day someone's going to try to deny this, and he wanted he wanted a record of it, um, and and, uh, and so we have extensive video and and still footage of of, of the the camps as they were uh, liberated, so to say. I'm
2: just I'm just thinking as you kind trying, trying to reconstruct a nation.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: There are some individuals that you want to be part of that reconstructed nation those who have particular skills. We all know about the scientists that were given amnesty or brought to the United States. Are there any other, maybe, career fields that were treated more leniently leniently because of the Reconstructed Nation?
1: Physicians, Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, the entire legal profession. Um, uh, (laughs) Except, this is interesting, if you were a prosecutor... um, Tr- pursuing war criminals. You were called a nespishmuka. I'm sure I messed that up, but it, it means a bird that that puts waste in its own nest. <laughs> um, and, and so they were criticized for actively pursuing uh, yeah. the war criminals. Uh, but the judges, many of the judges that had served in the, in the National Socialist Courts, which of course prosecuted the Nuremberg Laws mm-hmm. and, and all the racial laws, um, we're now sitting on the courts of, 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 well, especially West Germany. Uh, they, they, you know, one of the sad truths of all this is, is that the the uh, the record of accountability in East Germany
0: is far better than the one in West Germany. Because, like Eisenhower, the Soviets wanted the records. Yes. Now they had their own agendas with them, but they yeah. did still preserve them. Yes, yeah. they did. So, uh, an interesting point you brought up earlier, I'd like to return to is uh, the voice of the victim. Because what what we have largely been talking about is the interaction between the perpetrators, the Germans, and the allied governments. So you you said earlier kind of particularly the the voice of the Jewish victim is not particularly loud early in the process. Um, So where is that voice as we kind of move past this early Adenauer, you know, standing Germany back up period? Does it grow? Does it change? Yes. And and I, I can't give enough
1: credit to uh, a, a man called Raul Hilberg, who wrote um, probably the the signal book um, on the Holocaust, and it was um, it was so thoroughly um, researched. Um, and ironically, uh, he had worked as a records clerk at the IMT, which is how he got a hold of um, the, the these. Uh, these records to write his book The Destruction of the the European Jews and um, he I mean it it was so exact he had he had railroad timetables on how you were going to deliver and what what are the maximum capacities of the cattle cars and how he charged the German governors of the occupied areas for the trains they had to pay for the trains that they were bringing the people in to to, to go to the camps, and uh, and so these Jewish voices begin to pick up. Uh, the The Eichmann trial is, is is big. Primo Levi, you know, writes his book, and and Elie Wiesel writes his book, and and so these things start to get out there. And we talked about some of the films and Anne Frank, etc. And so the awareness is starting to get into the consciousness of the rest of the world. Um, and so Jewish voices begin to pick up. Um, it is interesting um, that they're mostly male voices to start with, um,
0: with the notable exception of Anne Frank.
1: Yes, yes. That, that uh, but but uh, there's not really a, 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 a woman's voice in this until later on. But the but the the uh, the male voice is, is is very effective in terms of describing um, the, the, the events of, of the Shoah, the the, the disaster. And um, <clears throat> uh, then we start to identify the different kinds of camps. It used to be they're all concentration camps, but they're not, because there are six death camps. Mm-hmm. Um, and those those camps, especially the, the three uh, Operation Reinhardt camps plus Kelmno, uh, were, were, were only built for one thing. They had no barracks for prisoners. They were only for murder.
0: Yeah, and there were no factories attached. Nope. Yeah,
1: yeah. So it's, it, it it that awareness begins to get out there in in especially in the late '60s and early '70s, coupled with well, among other things, our our problem with Vietnam and the idea of you know what did you do during the war, Daddy, and and so we start to see this this increased awareness, and then you start to see a demand for uh, accountability, and here we run into another conundrum. At this point, um, they have released so many of these folks that were con- that were convicted. Now, it, it wasn't unusual for people to be convicted twice. For example, um, von Papen uh, was. Um, was uh, convicted was, was exonerated or, or found not guilty by the International Military Tribunal, and several years later he was found guilty by a German court and imprisoned, yeah. um, and and then subsequently released. Um, but, but you know it but the German um, statutes of limitations included an idea of uh, not the statute the 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 basic law. Uh, the double jeopardy uh, mm-hmm. aspect of that was was alive and well, and so you couldn't retry these people, and that's where we got into the the, the thing that caused me to, to to write about this, and that is this idea that we're going to go after these 80 and 90 year old people that used to be guards in concentration camps, yet we've let all the colonels and majors go, and and I I you know one of the grumblings that you used to hear from the from the privates in, in Iraq was. You know, if uh, if I do something wrong, I'm going to get in trouble. But if a general does something wrong, he gets promoted. Um, it's just, it, you know, it's it's typical private grumbling. It's it's been it's been around since well Thermopylae. <laughs> right. Uh, but but the uh, uh, the result of this is is that the, the, with the renewed demand for accountability, which has come a, which has come, a, it's come to, into the play because of two. Streams that joined that hadn't that had not joined before, and the first one is this idea of of, of active prosecutors. And I talked about how the active the prosecutors were f- frequently marginalized and they weren't allowed to do what they what they were charged to do because there was no interest in prosecuting them. And then you had unwilling courts. These were courts that were peopled with former Nazi legal professionals, but as they as they rotate out as a function of age, they they attrit out Mm -hmm. uh, and go into retirement, and and a new generation of judges come in. And so these active prosecutors, that stream of energy joins with a stream of energy uh, where the courts are now willing. The courts are now willing to listen to these cases, Mm -hmm. but they have to listen to it under the German law, which says murder is murder. It's one person killing another person. And... uh, and and so they have to figure out how to do this Um, and there's there's an interesting development that comes out of uh, the criminal tribunals in Rwanda and Yugoslavia and it's an idea that's called joint criminal enterprise which is related to conspiracy and the idea is if you're related to the, if, if if you are somehow uh, involved in an enterprise that re- results in someone's death, that you could be
0: convicted of of, of murder. So this and, is essentially the RICO statute in American law. It, well,
1: it's yeah, it's very close to that. It's very interesting that you bring the, the RICO statute up. The because uh, that that does it fits very well.
0: And that broke the mob.
1: It did, and uh, and it actually has been enabled us to get uh, us is enabled uh, convictions against. Uh, former uh, members of the, of the Totenkopf SS, the Nazi, the Nazi death camp Guard, or concentration camp guards uh, Demianyk of course is the poster child for this um, and, and Demjaniuk um, n- they never proved that he killed anybody but they did prove that he was an accessory to murder in thousands of cases mm-hmm. and the way they did it was um, they first proved that Demianyk was there because you remember Damiani had two trials the first one in, in in Israel he was sentenced to death and then the the Soviets produced a document mm-hmm. <laughs> that said well he wasn't there and yeah, perhaps so, may not have been genuine exactly he could could might not have been but but they and when he came to his second trial in Germany um, they produced uh, an ID card that clearly mm-hmm. identified that he had served in Sobibor so that was step one step two was to prove that Sobibor was was built for one purpose and one purpose only and that was murder and 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 then a step 3 was that that he admitted to his service at Sobibor and with those three elements they convicted him of accessory to murder in you know thousands of instances of accessory to murder um, Ironically, Demyonych dies an innocent man because under German law it has to go to appeal. He died before the appeal was heard, and so the conviction uh, actually was not finalized. Um, But that is um, this confluence of this idea of of willing courts and active prosecutors happens (laughs) only with the passage of time uh, because you had to... um, you had to clean out the courts of, of the old Nazi-era, uh, National Socialist-era um, uh, judges, uh, and you had to uh, maintain the uh, the energy for accountability amongst the prosecutors in spite of the fact that they had been um, uh, sidelined and, and unable to do their job for, for a couple of decades. But they they, they were still able to to. Uh, to execute uh, their, their duties and, and when the willing courts came into play we started to see a number of these prosecutions. This is not all a good news story um, if I may. Um, <coughs> there, there is a 97 a, a year old woman now her name is Ermgard Fuchner and, um, and she was at age 17 the um, secretary to the commandant of the Stutthof uh, concentration camp. Um, now, I mentioned earlier that there were only six death camps, but there were a lot of camps, especially toward the end of the war, that got heavily involved. As the as the as the National Socialists did everything they could to kill as many Jews as possible before the war ended, all the co- many now really almost all of the concentration camps got involved in the death business, uh, as opposed to the forced labor business, et, mm-hmm. so, et cetera. Um, and Fuchner was the was the uh, secretary to the commandant of Stutthof, where a number of murders had happened, and he was put on trial. During his trial, uh, the then very in the fifties, this still young woman uh, said, "Not a piece of paper comes out of the commandant's office that I didn't touch." And she, I think, she was in, you know trying to play up her role. Well. Years later, that statement came back, uh, and 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 it was on on the strength of that statement and some witness testimony that she was indicted, and charged with um, again several thousand cases. I think seventeen thousand cases of of accessory to murder. Um, and so uh, it's it's ironic, too, because her office actually, the window in her office faced outside the camp.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so she her argument is that I couldn't see what was going on in the camp. And they said, well, you have this statement where you said that you, you know, and so all the commandant's reports of daily deaths, which they were compelled to submit every day, um, she is alleged to have seen that. Um, so i i to me that that stretching the statute a little bit far i mean if you, if you have um, a, you know a then 17 year old uh, girl um, is is uh, performing the duties of a clerk uh, and is somehow going to be a, a judge guilty of thousands of, of, of murder accessory to thousands of murder it seemed, she didn't help her case when she tried to escape last july and she At tried 97 she was 96 at the time. She tried to flee yeah. Germany and, uh, and was caught.
0: Yeah, didn't uh, get very far. does no. Yeah, so um, this is dumb question time because with a topic like this, you always have to ask the dumb questions so people don't get confused on them. Um, <laughs> this so they're is, not dumb questions. <laughs> this is a Department of Military History. We have not talked about tanks on battlefields. So how is, how is this, genocide and Holocaust studies, related to a, a, an integral part of military history?
1: And we're going back to a, an earlier discussion where um, we have uh, this army operates in places where um, it is not unusual to find that human life is cheap and human rights are absent, uh, or at least in very short supply. Um, and the way I'll answer the question is there's a member of our faculty um, who, as a very young engineer officer, um, was deployed to Rwanda in the wake of the, the Rwandan genocide. And her task was to use her earth moving equipment to move the bodies off the roads. Um, this was a this was this was a very young officer, first deployment. So, this is the kind of thing that our officers can encounter at any time, based on what uh, the U.S.'s chosen role in in the world.
0: Um, um, kind of dumb question number two, both from the military and the historian perspective. We, we have a pretty good understanding of how the average soldier in the German military became involved in the Holocaust group dynamics compliance culture all of those things so how do you craft a soldier to not fall into those traps
1: well, it's it, it's it's always going to be a challenge, and um, the the you know one of the things that um, the Department of Commander and Leadership talks about is is the ethical prosecution of duty in war zones, um, and uh, and we talk about um, strict adherence to the, not just the letter but also the spirit of of, of the law of war. And, and we need to uh, continue to push that. And, and the thing is, a, a command climate is established early on in an organization, and it clearly delineates for the members of that organization what is acceptable behavior and what is not acceptable behavior. The thing that happened to the Wehrmacht, uh, I believe, is that the regime, um, first of all, the, 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 the military in Germany did mortgage itself to the Fuhrer, and once they did that, then the the subordinate soldiers, no matter what they felt was right or wrong, um, had to, you know, they all swore an oath to the Fuhrer, not to Germany. They swore an oath to Adolf Hitler. Um, and and the, the other thing I'd point out here is that it, it, one of the one of the Things that you hear over and over again when you read these testimonies of, of the perpetrators of soldiers is that I had to comply or I would have been killed. Mm-hmm. I would have been, you know, I would have been uh, shot. And there is not one record extant of a of a soldier or a member of the military being uh, executed because of this. There 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 are records of some facing some other consequences, um, like, you know failed promotion or, or some other consequence. Uh, but even in the police battalions uh, in, in, that, that, that were part of the Einsatzgruppen, uh, even if you were one of these SS operatives that was committing you know 1.2 million murders in, in a short three and a half or four months in, 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 during Barbarossa, um, even those folks could refuse the duty and would be given other duties. Okay, you can drive the truck or you can operate the typewriter back in the orderly room, but you don't have to, you don't have to do the shooting anymore. So yeah, that, 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 to me, uh, indicates
0: you know, the ethos. Of yeah, it speaks to a structure that is, is rotten from core to tip.
1: Right, and, be, and, and, and the idea that if there's no consequence, it means that there's, there has to be um, an understanding that what is going on is wrong. There, there has to be, uh,
0: mm-hmm.
1: or there would be a consequence for refusing to follow an order, especially in a, in a, in an organization. You know the, 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 German military tradition, or you know, actually the Prussian military tradition, uh, as modernized in Germany, uh, prides itself on discipline and, and mm-hmm. you know obedience. And right. and, uh, and yet you could freely, not freely, but you could, you could disobey this order without without a consequence, and that that can only be. Uh, because everyone understood what they were doing was wrong.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, Doctor Carter, this has been a fascinating discussion. Thank you for joining us. Yeah,
2: thank you.
1: The, well, I would like to say my pleasure, but this is a subject that I that I I, I do. It is a dark subject, it, but it is something that requires examination, uh, especially by our population. I, I really believe it's important uh, for, for our officers to understand this.
0: Yeah, very much so. Very important thank topic. You. Right. If you like this episode, please make sure to check out our other podcast, Broad Gauge Gossips, where we talk to members of the Department of Military History faculty so you can get to know them.